For years, I just dreaded going to the dentist. But at Advanced Dentistry, I don't have to. First and foremost, they want you to feel comfortable when you walk in. Like, you'll feel it. Whereas in the past, I might have gone into the dentist and thinking, I might feel some pain at some point. But with IV sedation, it can be something that you don't dread. If you've been avoiding the dentist because of fear, worry, or just not wanting to be judged, you're not alone. Visit NoFearDentist.com to learn how IV sedation can change your life. Hey, this is DeRay, and thanks for joining Pod Save the People. You know, I've been told that in moments of uncertainty, that explanation over eloquence works. And this podcast is with John Legend, who talks about his work in activism, and then David Kamen, who talks about taxes. You know, this context that we're in is not as much about Trump as it is about a wave of ideology that has not been good to people of color, to people of marginalized communities, to women, that is now coming to fore. In so many ways, Trump is the product, not the producer. And what I know to be true is that the people who got us here won't be the people that get us away from here. So when I think about Potsy of the People, it is both about making sure people understand the issues and also about teaching people things that they didn't know. What is also true is that none of this is inevitable, that people made this. So the focus on taxes today is about making sure that people understand it well enough to be able to change it in the future. Hope is not naive belief that things will get better. Hope is an understanding that tomorrow can be better than today. So now we have my two cents, a reflection on the news with me, Brittany Packnett, a member of President Obama's task force on 21st century policing and the Ferguson Commission, and Samuel Sinyangwe, a data scientist with Campaign Zero. Let's talk about the most important things to us in the news for the past week. Sam, we will start with you. Oh, wait, before we start, Sam, happy anniversary. Yes, happy anniversary. Sam, what? Oh, um, thank you. You've been in a relationship with Ariel for how many years? Nine years. So basically, this is the day where you celebrate that she has put up with you for nine years. <laughs> she is a strong, brave, and courageous woman. And I'm how, just playing Sam. How we old love are you, you Sam? 26. That is deep. That's a long time. The longest I've ever done anything is go to college. <laughs> that is. How and long high did you school, go to college? <laughs> that was rude. Did you go to college I mean, any longer than I the rest of us? High school and co- school. school. Going to school is the longest we relationship have all done- I've had. <laughs> the longest relationship I've had is with books. Is with, is with knowledge, is how I think about it. Smarty. Brittany's so shady, y'all. That is, that is not true. With books. That is not true. You couldn't even you make it positive. You've been making fun of like, my grammar. All week. No, Let's no, not, not do grammar. This. You had a my one slip last you, week. It was a big slip. Thank you, everyone, for being so forgiving because I Brandy, didn't even I just hear want you when to, it came out of my mouth. I just want you to shine, and part <laughs> of that is about making sure that the words you use aren't real words. It's completely fine, and not alternative words, and not alternative words. Sam, um, congratulations! <laughs> happy um, anniversary to you both, Sam. Boom, boom, boom. Um, what's what's your news, Sam? What, what are you bringing to the table today? So today I wanted to talk about uh, last week's decision by the DOJ not to charge the two officers uh, involved in killing out in Sterling. Uh, so it's Officer Lake and Officer Salomon. And so this case has been going on since the middle of last year. Uh, finally, the DOJ announces what many people have had expected, uh, sadly, which is that they are not charging those officers. And now it goes to the state level uh, to see if the state will actually be pushing charges, which is easier to do at the state level, but mm-hmm. nevertheless, uh, extremely rare for them actually uh, to indict an officer for killing somebody. And Sam, what is the, uh, it's my understanding that 423 people have killed, been killed by the police in 2017 alone, and that only the officers who killed Jordan Edwards 
and Chad Robertson, who was killed by the Amtrak police in Chicago, have actually been charged with a crime. Is that correct? That's correct. So that's two out of 423. It's less than half of a percent. Mm. And how many people, how many black people have been killed by the police this year? Do you know? 110 black folks have been killed by police so far this year. Uh, And that's, again, that's a higher uh, proportion, higher rate for black folks uh, than for any other group. So black folks are about about 12% of the population, 25% of those who've been killed by police. And that's the, that's true this year. It was true last year and the year before that. Yeah, and Jordan Edwards uh, was the youngest killed this year. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah. That's correct. Yeah, which is, you know, even um, sitting here after all of the work that has been done um, by activists all over the country in Baton Rouge, Baltimore, Ferguson, beyond, um, I think it would surprise a lot of people, the numbers that you talked about, Sam, for this year in particular. I think there has been so much calamity uh, in the world, in our country in particular, and so many people discovering that their issue, their identity is also in danger, that in some ways folks have kind of forgotten about police violence as an issue um, and, and haven't um, recognized that we are still being killed by the police, that black people are still being killed um, at, at the highest proportions, and that this is still an issue of of great importance, right? And we haven't forgotten. It is we like certainly haven't forgotten. But the, people were kind of surprised when this happened yeah. again. Yeah. yeah. Um, it was almost like people had forgotten about it. Um, and it, that was a tough day because, to my memory, um, Jordan Edwards was killed, I want to say, within 24 hours of when the Alton Sterling news came out. Um, and so it just felt like a particularly defeating 24 hours. And the, the kind of emotional trigger for me was reminded me of the two-day span in which Alton Sterling and Philando Castile were killed. Um, and that was when actually we decided to go down in, ba- down in Baton Rouge and stand with the activists down there. So, And I spent yeah. 17 long hours in jail, and we are With 150 folks. Oh, yes, we are being sued, the whole movement. I'm actually not supposed to talk about that lawsuit. Oh, take that off, please. It's fine. No, we can say What I can say is that I'm being sued by an officer for— He's alleging that I am the reason that he got hit with the rock, and yeah. I am not the reason he got hit with the rock. But oh, my, we we all received summons yes, saying that we did. we got a summons that said um, there's a lawsuit filed against you, and I was like, for what? Because yeah. um, I'm not guilty of any of these. We're gonna things. get in trouble. My lawyer's gonna be like, Trace, stop. Before we move on from from talking about police violence, one of the things that has been sort of worrisome about the way that people have talked about Jordan Edwards is uh, this idea that. The case has gotten national attention because he was a model victim mm-hmm. and that he was such an incredible, perfect kid. And that is the only reason why we're talking about the fact that he was killed by the police. Right. And the reality is, is that regardless of his uh, academic credentials or how gentle and kind he was, like his life was still important. Absolutely. And I want us to be careful to not play into this model victim mentality. And we have to recognize that. This has been true for black people forever, right? We had to be model victims in the civil rights movement. Um, That's why folks wore their Sunday best, right? That's why the Children's March was so important, because if we could show Bull Connor attacking children, um, then maybe people would finally have a heart to what we we were enduring. Um, You know, Rosa Parks was um, a better vehicle by which to display the injustices of segregation than was Claudette Colvin, right? Both of them incredible and important women uh, and profiles and courage, but um, very different in terms of of their appeal kind of to the American mentality. I mean, black people had to be perfect to be president, right? I mean, 
if we're clear, policies and politics aside, the Obamas had no personal scandals. And I don't know about you, but I, in my lifetime, cannot remember the last time that there were not personal scandals in the White House. But we all knew in order for us to finally have a black man in the White House, um, they had to be perfect, right? So the idea that black people have to be perfect either to achieve or to be model victims of some kind and to properly display the injustice we face is not a new concept, but it is nonetheless infuriating. Yeah, I don't have to be perfect for you to acknowledge my humanity. It's That's one right. of the things that frustrates me about the way people talk about police training, or not police training, but like community policing, as if this idea of like uh, the police need to like play basketball with That's people right. to not kill them. It's like or give free ice cream. Yeah, out. you don't need to. You no. don't need to know my name not to shoot me down the That's middle right. of the street. Right? That's like right. I'm, a, I'm a human and a whole person. Let's be clear. Ice cream is nice, but you not killing me is better, and yeah. I should be recognized as a human being, whether or not we have shared some rocky road. Correct. Right. Right. I mean, when I'm looking at this ice cream situation, you know, my question is, show me the evidence that, you know, getting ice cream, cops getting ice cream with kids impacts levels of use of force and police shootings because I haven't seen it. <laughs> Sam's like, so, where are the numbers? Right, he's like, where's the data? Sam, you're a whole genius and right. we appreciate you. And thank you for always bringing us back to what is the evidence. Yeah. And Sam, where can people go to find more information about the numbers around police violence? So they can go to mappingpoliceviolence.org, the most comprehensive database of people killed by police in the U.S. Do you have another piece of news? Yeah, so I wanted to talk about uh, this recent French election. Uh, Macron won, beat uh, Le Pen, who was the far-right sort of Trump-styled politician. Uh, And it it was a big victory. It was like a blowout. Mm -hmm. Last time time I saw the the numbers, it was something like 65%. Uh, Macron won won by 39 years old. Um, It was was great to see that there was a lot of worries leading up into this election that Le Pen could win. It could be another sort of big upset where the you know white supremacist, white nationalist candidate wins. Um, and it was good to see the French people reject that. It would have been the trifecta, right? It would have been like Brexit, Trump, and then this. Right. <laughs> it would have been too much. Thankfully, thankfully he won. And, you know, it was powerful to see the celebration yeah. in the streets because that is what we did not get, right? I know that one of the conversations surrounding this election was how the French media decided to treat um, a reported massive hack and leak of um, of data and information coming out of Macron's uh, uh, campaign. Um, they decided not to print a lot of that stuff because it hadn't been vetted. They hadn't done their due diligence and they didn't want anything to interfere with the election. So obviously comparisons to the DNC WikiLeaks uh, happened very quickly. Uh, and a lot of folks really wish that the American media had behaved the same as the French media um, and, and whether or not um, have been questioning whether or not the election results here would have been any different. So two pieces of news, both related to um, education. The first is actually out of Puerto Rico. They, as a lot of you probably know, have declared a bankruptcy. They have a $73 billion public debt, um, which just to put it in perspective for you, is over three times as much as the $20 billion debt that uh, Detroit, Michigan uh, claimed in their 2013 bankruptcy. But one of the solutions that they have come up with is to close about 179 public schools. Mm. It's supposed to save about $7 million, and it's going to displace 27,000 students. There are lots of conversations 
conversation swirling around this about why Puerto Rico ended up in this situation in the first place, about why Congress let this happen. But I, I think it's important whenever we're having a conversation about education to put children first. Uh, I was reading accounts of parents that were deeply frustrated because their children have been moved around so much. Um, and it is really traumatic for a child when they are trying to be their best, when they are trying to learn, to have to keep moving around, meeting different expectations, learning new surroundings, meeting new friends, um, getting to know new expectations. Uh, you know, there was a parent saying that her daughter had been moved twice in the same school year, and that just wreaks havoc on a young person's learning. But then, you know, there are a lot of complexities to this. So there has been a a pretty significant population loss and school enrollment loss uh, in public schools in Puerto Rico over the last three decades. They've lost 42 percent of their students. And one principal whose school is closing uh, was saying uh, in in the story that I read that she's actually happy to see her school closed because she didn't have the resources to be supporting the students that she has. Um, other folks are having a necessary conversation, once again, about Puerto Rico statehood, right? Would Puerto Rico have been um, in this much debt if they had the protections and the regulations that um, a municipality or a state that is already a part of the U.S. has? I think the thing that it really made me think of, though, um, is how easy it is to ignore uh, the needs and and the, um, the lives and the humanity of folks who don't live on the mainland. I spent about a week in Hawaii a couple of weeks ago visiting schools and sitting with students um, who really just wanted folks to, you know, remember that there is talent and wealth and goodness um, in Hawaii. And this happened during the same week that some folks, Attorney General, I'm going to get in trouble for that one, too. But some folks, Attorney General, uh, said that um, Hawaii was just some island in the Pacific as as if it was not our 50th state, <laughs> um, despite the fact, you know, that there's a whole nother conversation about colonization there. Um, so I just I worry about about what can happen with students um, in this situation. Wow, to think that Puerto Rico doesn't have like voting representation in Congress. Absolutely. And yet to have such needs and absolutely no like power to actually uh, distribute some money to fix that. I mean, that's, yeah. That's wild to think about. Yeah. And I think that we should probably have a, a whole separate uh, conversation on another episode about school closings because mm-hmm. it is something that well, the reality is that it's not uh, there. People live on the extremes when we think about school closures. It's like never, ever close a school ever, ever in the world or close everything. Right. And there is a neither of those, I think, is like the right thing for kids. I think what is so shocking about this BP as you bring it up is is like it's just so massive. We could avoid it's avoidable yeah. and that. There's a question about like what does quality look like mm-hmm. when you cut so many mm-hmm. classrooms? And like, what was quality looking like, quite frankly, before this? Right. If we know that a principal of a closing school is saying, close it, because I actually didn't have the resources to support the few kids that I had here. Right. That is troubling, um, especially when you think about 27,000 students. It's only going to save $7 million. So we're, what was the real <laughs> investment in the first place? Right. That's a, that's a, there are just that's a lot. Of, I just have a lot of questions, right? And I yeah. am not an expert on education in Puerto Rico. I do not want to pretend that I am. I just read it, and I had a lot of questions, but I came away thinking – um, and being very worried about um, the children in this situation already having a lack of voice, right, because they can't participate in formal voting processes because they're too young in so many societies. In every society, young people tend to be the ones with the least voice. And then, Sam, as you said, a lack of voting representation in Congress, not being a part of the mainland. There are just so many ways in which we can push people to the side and not um, pay attention to their humanity and feed their needs. Yeah. Second piece of news? My second piece of news, again, also about education. 
also about that guy who sits in the Oval Office. So I was reading in Politico, uh, and I got you know there were a couple of people who were a little mad at me last week for saying some some folks president. Um, but as I reminded folks, like I will claim him when he claims me, and That's this real. story is a reminder that he is not claiming a whole bunch of folks that, that look is, like us. Rennie, that's the word. I will claim him when he I'm claims just, me I'm just is saying. honest. I'm just saying, right? Like, say what you will about President Obama. He claimed. Right. He was like, I'm everybody's president. He, he Y'all really might not did. like it. And it I drove am. people nuts. But it he claimed a lot of people. And Folks were like, I don't want you. And, and he was still like, you're mine. Right. And <laughs> DT is like. No. No. So he doesn't want me. I'm, I'm cool. Um, but so this story in Politico talked about um, Mr. Trump's signing of the spending package, the $1.1 trillion spending package. And he put a, a note in there that uh, they may not fund the finance program for historically black colleges and universities, HBCUs, because it might be unconstitutional um, on the basis of race. What's interesting about this, though, is that it's a it's a loan financing program that has been in existence since 1992. 1992 is when George H.W. Bush was president. So this program was created under a Republican. It has survived for 25 years under Republican and Democrat presidents. Uh, and yet. Trump is questioning this after meeting with the with the HBCU presidents, um, after, of course, making a commitment during the campaign to, quote, fix the inner cities, whatever that means. But I'm thinking if you say you're trying to help black people, that should include educating our children well. Um, and so I was really disappointed by that. But I will be honest. The first thing that came to mind um, was the fact that Several months ago, the education secretary propped up HBCUs, you remember this, Mm -hmm. as the first example of school choice, which, A, is wrong because HBCUs were created because black people didn't have any choice. Um, B, though, it just kind of makes me wonder, like, who is talking to who over there? Like, are you really having conversations? Does the left hand know what the right hand is doing? Um, And where's Omarosa? That's what I thought. It's like, (laughs) Omarosa, I thought you were – people ask us, what do we have to lose? And it's like – Let's be clear that the federal government has been disproportionately right, has been disproportionately funding financing historically white institutions for a long time. Forever. And Since for, the country started. For, forever. <laughs> you forever. Said, you said forever. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, this is this is just so interesting. And which one of the things you said that I continue to think about is the framing, right? Is the it is his framing is always or the administration's framing is always crime infested areas. It is never areas impacted by structural racism. Right. And this is a manifestation of that lens. Absolutely. Right, which I think is interesting. Sam? Actually, there's a huge hypocrisy here where Trump is saying that he doesn't think it's constitutional to fund HBCUs because he perceives that to be on the basis of race. But on the other hand, he is talking about wanting to do nationwide racial profiling and stop and frisk. Uh, and then he's signing executive orders that are discriminating against Muslims uh, pretty pretty explicitly. So Preach, you know, is, it, is his knowledge of, and understanding of the Constitution that it is only constitutional to discriminate against people on the basis of race mm. in a harmful way, but not constitutional to actually support communities uh, that have been impacted by those same types of policies? And I mean, legally, it actually has nothing to do with race, right? It's about the mission of HBCUs. When you read them, it's not about being a race-based institution. It's about providing for young people who typically are not provided for. It's not like if you are not black, you can't go to HBCUs, right? And so this is it. It's just 
incorrect. But you was preaching, Sam. I probably shouldn't have interrupted you. You were like, we didn't land on Plymouth Rock. Plymouth Rock landed, <laughs> landed on, on us. us. Landed on us. <laughs> and I think, too, that one of the things that it makes me think about when we talk about the history of HBCUs as being focused on people come from historically disadvantaged communities, I think about the literacy gap mm. as, like a, as a thing that we've talked about before. Is, you know, I'm a third-generation reader. My great-grandmother can only sign her name, and she was incredibly proud. And I say that because... Like, we don't come from a legacy of literacy, right? Yeah. Like, and we still, I, I go to places and I ask people, like, are you a third generation reader? You're a second generation reader. And every single time, there's somebody who's like a first generation reader, a second mm-hmm. generation reader. And there's a, the legacy of that is something that we have to account for structurally. And we aren't talking about reparations on this issue. And the word reparations gets people sort of in a tizzy. But this idea of acknowledging uh, systemic wrongdoing and repairing it does not necessarily mean a blank check. But it's like, what would it mean to correct for a legacy of non-literacy? that was institutionalized. I mean, it certainly means acknowledging the continued disadvantages based on systemic choices. I have been told, right, I have have to go look this up. I have been told, right, legend would have it, that my father was actually the first black graduate um, of the accounting degree program at Illinois State University. Went on to become a pastor, went to Yale Divinity School. Uh, But this idea that I am one generation removed from a black first, right, that the only the uh, second black head usher of the White House just was fired, right, the idea that in our lifetime, we are still seeing black firsts and black seconds um, is is a reminder that we have we are not that far removed from all of the times in which it was uh, legal to discriminate against folks just like us. Um, and and that the repair is still necessary because the the effects, the trauma, um, the disadvantage is still existing. Yep. The trauma is present. So the work is still present. And in addition to the trauma, there's also this huge issue of resources. Right. Mm-hmm. So. The average white household has $141,000 in resources, and the average black household has $11,000. Yep. Right? So what does it mean to actually make up $130,000 to close that gap? And I think that that's the the huge scale of the problem, right? It manifests in so many different ways, whether Mm -hmm. it's in literacy uh, or in access to, you know, educational opportunity, employment, all these other sectors. So Sam, we should figure figure out out. in another episode to talk about – we should talk about the wealth gap and solutions. Yeah, we should do that. <laughs> you can go now. Sam yeah. had more preaching to do. You no, no. <laughs> Sam is over here preaching today. He is. So two pieces of news. One is, I don't even want to count this as one of my pieces, but the health care bill passed in the House. It is bad. We talked about it last episode. Hopefully it doesn't pass in the Senate. My real piece of news is, one, is there reports that the FDA, the, the TVs in the FDA are, have been mandated to be turned to Fox News, which is definitely the beginning of fascism. That's not even a news station. And... It is scary that the federal government is mandating Mm -hmm. that people are, like, inundated with this propaganda that's been the news. Fox News. Phone news. Phone news. (laughs) Yeah. It's interesting. I remember using the word fascism when we were at the DNC, but this was just July. And I remember hearing this audible gasp in the room when I said it. And I was like oh, I didn't realize that we were not going to be honest about what the <laughs> possibilities are here. Um, but it's it's scary for people, right? It feels like conspiracy theory. It feels like an extreme. And yet these are the building blocks of fascism, right? These are the little choices um, that are being made for people every single day that then build up to us living in the middle of the nightmare. We can't 
have that happen and then suddenly look up and say, I don't know how we got here. We have to be critical and questioning all along. Um, and so if it sounds like it's ext- an extreme conversation, if it sounds like conspiracy, I would rather have this conversation now than be suffering from the effects of it later. Yeah, and what's interesting about the FDA thing with the TVs is that it sort of didn't get a lot of press coverage, I it don't didn't. think. It didn't. Sam? I mean, it's wild, especially considering what's on Fox News right now. So on Fox <laughs> News, the narrative well, is not that Bill O'Reilly anymore. bill is going to be I good for that. everyone. Right, right. It, the narrative is that, like, everything's fine. Trump's doing a great job, and the health care bill is going to, to basically be better than Obamacare and not result in any loss in coverage. And so it's problematic on so many different fronts. One, that the president is literally watching, like, that's his favorite show. And mm-hmm. so this is the narrative that he gets. You know he doesn't know a lot about policy. And so this is shaping, you know, it might influence his decision whether or not to support and or sign a particular bill, which is incredibly, which could be so devastating. And then when you're thinking about the government requiring it, requiring people in an agency to watch it, I mean, you know, that's the type of, as you said, Brittany, that's sort of the the building blocks to fascism. Yeah. I also remember reading, and I don't want to get the numbers wrong, but I remember reading that for a large sector of Fox News's audience, that is not just the news that they like to watch, but it's the only news they watch. Which is so scary. It's very scary, right? And so this feels to me like, okay, well, if we could win an election from that being our base, then what can we do if all of our employees are also only able to watch Fox News? It's just, it's very worrisome. We should all have a giant flag right now. Giant flag. Giant flag. Giant flag. <laughs> um, my last piece of news is is about health, is that there's a measles outbreak in Minnesota. It is one of the most recent and biggest outbreaks since we eradicated measles in the early 2000s. And it, it happened because there were anti-vaccine folks who targeted people in Minnesota and the Somali community and convince them that there was a link between vaccines and autism. And there is no scientific evidence to conclude that there, that vaccines cause autism, but it led to people not getting their kids vaccinated. And it now led to an outbreak of measles, like 40 kids. And that is just so scary because it's a disease that we've been able to eradicate in America in the 2000s. Uh, but this anti-vaccine sort of wave of people uh, is doing real damage in communities. Yeah, I'm certainly not a medical expert. I just know that seeing measles in a headline in 2017 is very scary to me. I also know I was raised by a woman, and you probably (laughs) were raised by folks who were like, no, you're going to get your shots, and you're going to school with kids who got their shots. Because these conversations about privileging my child over other people's children is scary to me. And I didn't know this piece about kind of an immigrant community being targeted with this information, which makes it incredibly curious to me. Um, who was giving out this information, why they decided to target this particular community, why they decided to prey upon this particular community. That worries me deeply. You know, I mean, it's this conference. When I have seen um, kind of anti-vaccination conversations, it has usually been economically privileged, racially privileged folks who have been opting out of, of vaccinations. And that, to me, feels like this conversation about global warming, right? It's like, well, I don't believe global warming exists, so I can drive my 14 Hummers and, like, you're going to deal with the consequences if they're real, but that's not my problem. Um, And that kind of stuff, just the conversations that always privilege certain folks over others are are things that consistently worry me. And let me just read one of the stats is that uh, the MMR, measles, mumps, and rubella vaccination rates among U.S.-born children of Somali descent used to be higher than among other children in Minnesota. So – 
uh, Somali kids were vaccinated at a high rate than white kids even. Mm. Uh, but the rates plummeted from 92% in 2004 to 42% in 2014 which is such a deep yeah. decline, which has led to the outbreak. So I just want to bring that here. I think it's an interesting thing, and we should, uh, hopefully, we will get back to uh, no measles. Sam? Again, this speaks to the power of fake news, right? We talked about Fox News, and here you're seeing fake news essentially being used in a targeted way to create an epidemic, right? And so this is so serious and, and literally can be life or death for people. And so how do we, like, build structures and, and deal with the ecosystem of news in a way that, ensures that it is fact-based, that, that people have access to perspectives that aren't, you know, just Fox News uh, or just, you know, whoever is creating this kind of content. Uh, and I think there are so many different companies that need to step up and actually do something about this before, you know, again, before these consequences get even more dire. Yeah, I'm definitely going to have to learn more about it. But if y'all are mad, please send all of your mail to direct. (laughs) I'll forward it to Brittany. Well, that was this week in the news, and we'll be back next week. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell you all, they sent me the Factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like, I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, whew, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, and we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. 
That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash people. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley, in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. And up next is my conversation with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter John Legend. So, John, thank you for being able to join us on the second episode of Pod Save the People. I'm excited to have you. I'm excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Where are you? I'm actually at home in Beverly Hills. Um, I'll be home for a couple more days, and I head out on tour soon. And you are the proud father of a, a baby girl, Luna. How old is Luna now? Luna just turned one on April 14th, and uh, she just started walking right around her birthday. <laughs> um, and... Uh, She's growing, man. It's happening quickly. How does being a father change the way you think about this current context, either as an activist, uh, as an artist? Like, what does that, how has that changed your world? Well, I think a couple things. Uh, one, you realize how challenging it is to be a parent. It's going to be interesting dealing with parenthood and understanding when to talk about race with our kids. And, and um, obviously, our kids are going to be of mixed race. Um, Chrissy's mother is Thai. Her father is American with a Northern European ancestry. And then my, both of my parents are black. Um, and, um, it'll be interesting even thinking about racial identity for her. Um, and obviously she's growing up in very rarefied air in a, in a certain situation that's not normal anyway. Um, so it'll be interesting thinking about when to introduce those conversations to her and how she can think about who she is and what her ancestry is and what that means in America. I don't know yet. I'll probably be asking a lot of parents that have older kids uh, for advice on these kinds of issues. We have all the resources that one would need to uh, raise a child in a good environment, and it makes me aware of comparing what we have to what a lot of other people have and don't have. Uh, it makes me realize that for them it's even so much more challenging and it makes me politically even more progressive, uh, if, if that was possible, than I was before, because it makes me think about, well, they need to make sure everyone has health care access. They need to make sure everyone has child care access and, and um, all the resources they need to feed and clothe their children and make sure they go to good schools, because I know we have those things, and it's a challenge for us. Um, and for those who don't have it, it's even more challenging. And so I think it makes me appreciate what we have, but also want uh, at least a, a, some minimum of that kind of support for um, everybody in the country and, in, and even beyond our borders. And do people ever tell you to, to just stay in your lane? Like, you're a singer, and we, we knew you oh, first as a singer. Uh, people definitely tell me to try to stay in my lane. What do you say to those people? And I, I, let me say one more thing about uh, how, how being a father politically affects me, too, because um, I think it makes me even more... Um, more adamant in my defense of women's reproductive rights because hmm. I believe, you know, it's such a major undertaking to bear a child, to mother a child, all these things that uh, women have to do, uh, whether or not the man is around or not. And um, for the government to force that decision or any decision regarding uh, 
women's uh, reproductive rights uh, on a woman uh, just is unconscionable to me. I, I couldn't even imagine living in a society where um, those decisions were forced upon a woman. That makes sense. And back to this idea of staying in your own lane. Do people, I'm assuming people say, yeah. like, you're a singer. We knew you first as a singer and an artist and this incredible pianist. Uh, what do you say to those people who are like, this isn't your work? Your work isn't to talk about mass incarceration or reproductive rights or Trump or or mass incarceration. Uh, what do you say to those people? Well, whose work is it? You know, um, we're all we all have jobs outside of politics, uh, except for actual politicians. But we're all citizens. We all pay taxes. We all uh, are affected by the decisions that our politicians make. And um, we have an, uh, a responsibility as citizens to vote. And that's the bare minimum, but uh, we also um, have an opportunity, if we want to, to communicate to our fellow citizens um, what we think about the choices that are in front of us, what we think about the candidates, what we think about the, uh, the laws that are being passed in our names. Because all of this is ours. It's our democracy. It's our tax money. It's, um, it's, it's, it's us that's going to uh, be affected by what's happening. And whether we're rich or poor, celebrity or not celebrity, uh, we have a right and I would say a responsibility to know what's happening and to get involved when it makes sense for us to do so. And so um, whether I was a singer or not, I would be politically aware and politically involved. But the fact that I'm a singer gives me an opportunity to be heard by more people. And, um, and uh, I don't want to waste that opportunity um, by not, you know, making my voice heard when it when it matters to me. And what do you think is the role of celebrities in this moment? I think you and Chrissy both have been outspoken on social media and in a host of other platforms. You with Selma Underground and the work you're doing around prosecutors, uh, Chrissy in, in her own space. Uh, what do you think is the role of celebrities? Or what advice do you give to other influencers when they come to you and say, how can they use their platform? And why do you think people might be afraid to use their platforms in this moment? Well, I think it's not for everybody, first of all. I think um, some of us are more interested in these things. We're willing to do the work of studying up and, and meeting with activists, meeting with experts, um, uh, forming some kind of policy or, or kind of brain trust infrastructure around us. Um, I've been willing to do all those things. We put money toward it. We've put staff toward it. Um, and we do our homework before we get involved with just about anything. There's some things I just talk about because, you know, I read articles about it and I'm interested and I forward it to my people on my Twitter feed or whatever. But the things that I'm uh, actively involved in, like ending mass incarceration and, and thinking about uh, ways to improve our schools, um, I talk to experts about these things all the time and I have a team that's organized around it. So some celebrities, I don't think, have the interest or the passion or the wherewithal to do that kind of work. And so we don't need them all to be involved. Um, you know, um, sometimes it can be counterproductive for someone just because they're famous to get involved if they're not willing to do the work that uh, would make them more effective. Uh, but for those of us who are willing, we have an opportunity. We have power. We have uh, a platform. We have an audience. And uh, we have an opportunity to use that for good, and I choose to do so. Um, I know there's some artists that don't want to do it because there probably are some financial cost to it and you lose some audience you lose um you know you lose some fans and um i think everybody's not willing to make that sacrifice 
or doesn't have the passion uh, for any particular issue that would make it worth it for them to make that sacrifice. And so, you know, to each his or her own. But uh, I know who I am. I know what I'm interested in. I know what I'm passionate about. And I know what kind of opportunity I have to make change. So I've decided to use that opportunity. Uh, you know, we first met at we first met in person at a fast company event with where Adam was yep. uh, as well, who was leading your prosecutor work. Um, we met on Twitter mm-hmm. long before that, focused on these issues of police violence and mass incarceration. I'd love for you to talk a little mm-hmm. bit about uh, your work in mass incarceration and and what have you found out in your since you've started this work that you didn't know before that you are trying to get to as many people as possible. Well, it's been an interesting journey because. Um, it started um, with me just kind of uh, as a as an artist and as a uh, uh, up and coming film and TV producer starting to get involved with content um, that uh, talked about these issues. So one of the first um, moments when I really was uh, developing a deeper understanding of our system of mass incarceration, the war on drugs, and all the cost that it's uh, exacted on our communities uh, was when I was involved in a film called The House I Live In which was directed by Eugene Jarecki, and uh, it was about the failed war on drugs. And uh, it really explored mass incarceration and looked at its effects on, on, on so many communities. Uh, and and uh, one of the major talking heads in that documentary was uh, Michelle Alexander, um, who had just written at that time a book called The New Jim Crow, which a lot of us have read now, but at that time, uh, it was a relatively, uh, you know, under-the-radar book that gained more and more uh, appreciation as it kind of continued to live on and as these issues became more and more in the zeitgeist. So when I uh, saw what Michelle was talking about in the documentary and then went back and read her book, honestly, I, I got upset. I was angry. Um, I knew... Racism was real. I knew there was probably some unfairness in the criminal justice system, but I hadn't thought about it in such detail and seen it spelled out for me in such a um, powerful way. So as soon as I read that book, um, I had a, I sent an email to my team and said, you all need to read this book, first of all. And secondly, um, we need to start diverting some of our resources that we're spending on education to think about this issue of mass incarceration and how we can get involved. Uh, because um, I felt like more people needed to be thinking about it, more people needed to be using their platform to um, change the story and uh, make change happen. So uh, we started Free America not long after that. We started it, um, and we kind of formed a brain trust of policy experts and activists around us um, that uh, understood the issue and had been doing work in the issue for a while, um, I met with them, and, and their advice to me was, you should spend the first uh, year or two just listening and, and trying to understand the problem so you can figure out where you can help out. And so we went around and did a listening and learning tour where we um, we visited prisons, we visited jails, we visited uh, immigration detention centers, uh, we visited juvenile uh, detention centers, uh, we uh, met with district attorneys, we met with um, state legislators in uh, various states around the country. Uh, we met with police officers. We met with uh, survivors of crime, uh, you know, people who, whose family members have been killed or hurt in some way. 
um, and we talk with corrections officers. We talk with just about every type of stakeholder there there is, including those who are currently incarcerated and those who are formerly incarcerated, um, because we wanted to get everyone's perspective. And I think everyone agrees that we lock up far too many people in this country for far too long, or at least everybody we talk to uh, agree with that. Um, and then we started to think about ways we could make change. And for those that don't know much about the criminal justice system, uh, the majority of people in jails and prisons are uh, under the supervision of states, counties, and, and local municipalities. So uh, they're not federal prisoners, uh, the majority of them. And so uh, the majority of the uh, people that would be affected by policy changes um, would be if we were, to able, were able to uh, make those changes on the state and local level. And so a lot of our activism has been around finding uh, state organizations that are putting together suites of uh, legislation that have a potential to get passed in state legislatures and uh, when it's effective and when it's helpful for us to get involved and add my celebrity, add my national, uh, you know, ability to communicate um, these issues and, uh, and go to these states and, and help kind of tip the scales in the right way so that we can get these laws passed. We're, we were able to accomplish uh, those kinds of things in Texas. Uh, we were able to accomplish some of those things in California. We were able to help with these things in some uh, district attorney races around the country, like Chicago. Uh, we were able to help with the uh, sheriff's race in uh, Arizona to get rid of Joe Arpaio. Um, and uh, we got involved with several other similar campaigns. Uh, we were involved with Close Rikers in New York and other state and local campaigns to change laws that we felt like we had a chance to help with and that had some momentum because of the work that activists were doing on the ground in those states. And so we've gotten involved in all those things and seen some actual change happen in, in legislature that's affecting a lot of people's lives. We also got involved nationally with uh, pressing uh, President Obama to uh, ban the box, which wasn't done completely, but it was done in a significant way with uh, federal contractors uh, that the, uh, the government deals with. So these are the kinds of things we got involved with, both uh, on the state level and uh, county level, and then, of course, on the national level. And then another thing that uh, kind of arose from our listening and learning tour was understanding uh, the role that prosecutors play and realizing that so much of the control is in the prosecutor's hands. Uh, we're aware that legislators set the sentencing guidelines for um, you know, if you commit this crime, then, you know, your, uh, your sentence will be this range of years or, or months or whatever, or this fine. Those are set by the legislature. But uh, what a lot of people don't realize is that prosecutors have a lot of the power when it comes to determining um, what charges are, are brought up, uh, what kinds of deals are struck. And most, uh, over 90% of the cases don't even go to trial. So, uh, you know, our understanding from watching TV of what, of what the criminal justice system works like where, you know, you have these investigators, they build up all this evidence, and they go to court and argue it, and Ben Matlock or Perry Mason or, 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 or you know, uh, or Viola Davis's character right. on how to get away with murder <laughs> or, or defending these 
clients and, and they argue and all these things happen. None of that really ever happens. 95% of the time, a deal is struck with a defendant who usually doesn't have great counsel or, or counsel they, uh, you know, they're usually court appointed and, and under resourced and, uh, overworked counsel. And they usually are coerced to, to make some kind of deal, uh, under threat of, you know, a, a larger sentence. And so basically the prosecutor is controlling that whole situation. And if we're not examining who the prosecutors are in these scenarios, then we can never completely uh, address all the issues with mass incarceration. So long story short, we realized prosecutors were so important, and we decided we need to get involved with uh, reforming the practices of uh, prosecutors' offices around the country. And so we've started um, thinking about how we can do that. Um, and we're kind of early in thinking about that, but um, part of it is uh, helping prosecutors uh, think of new incentives and new metrics by which to judge whether or not they're successful. Um, and, you know, right now, I think most people consider it a success if they get the longest sentence uh, and get the highest charge they think they can, they can get. Um, and, and, they don't. Uh, they don't have any. They don't have any incentive to think more creatively and think more holistically about uh, what the effect of that sentence will be on that individual and on the community. And so we're trying to think of ways to uh, give prosecutors the tools to think of their success or failure in different ways, so that uh, they can do things that are better for the community. Um, so these are the kinds of things we're thinking about right now. And uh, uh, we're in early stage development on, on those ideas, but we're going to keep working at it and try to see how we can help. I think in so many ways you are a model for uh, for what it means for influencers to use their influence in ways that actually benefit the lives of people of color. Two things I think of when I hear you talk about uh, the work that you've been engaged in across a host of areas. Uh, one is you offer an incisive critique of the system, right? Like this idea that this is not about sort of random, episodic things. This is about changing structures and systems that impact people's lives. I'd love to know, how is that informed by your identity as a black man, as a, as a black man raising uh, a, a mixed daughter, as, a, as an artist uh, who has influence in a space that is decidedly R&B, um, and, as a, and as a person who has used your representation both, both physically and vocally uh, to press for change. So I'd love to know what that looks like for you. Well, when I think about mass incarceration, I'm fully aware of how this issue is really felt in the black community. It's felt in the brown community as well, but it's felt in the black community more than any other community in America. And I know that on a personal level because I've had relatives who were locked up. My mother was locked up for uh, during a time when she had a drug addiction. I have other friends and family that I grew up with that have uh, been locked up. And so I've seen personally how this affects our community. And then uh, part of it was through working in our schools. And, and you know, uh, we, we think about making sure our kids get the best education they can get. But then you start to realize that a lot of these kids have so many challenges outside of school that make it harder for them to get the best education uh, they can get. Some of those issues are, are problems with the actual school themselves. But also, these kids are often in uh, single-parent homes where one of their parents is uh, locked up. They're often in other situations where 
um, the criminal justice system makes it harder for them to survive and thrive in their community. And so we can't think merely about our schools if we're thinking about uplifting our kids. We have to think about all the other systems that are around them um, that make it harder or easier for them to succeed. And uh, the more I looked at it, I knew my, the, that our, our criminal justice system was making it harder for too many of our young people to succeed. And as a black man, I felt um, it was important, if we think about the challenges that are facing um, our community particularly, to, um, to really think about this issue and uh, see how I could be helpful. Now, both of my parents were addicted to drugs. My, my father raised us, my mother left when I was three, and... And that resonates with me, this understanding of our own personal stories and, and the way that it impacts this larger, the way that we think about larger struggle. I'd love to talk to you at some point, yeah. potentially offline, about uh, addiction work that we uh, could do together. Now, you have worked with so many activists across the country because of your, uh, because of Selma, because of the work that you're doing around prosecutors and mass incarceration. I'd love to know, like, one or two lessons that you've learned from activists. Well, like uh, one of the things was, like I said earlier, uh, when, when we first met with some activists and, and thinkers around this issue, the first thing they advised me to do was just listen <laughs> for the first year or so and not do a lot of talking and, and not do a lot of policy recommendations early on uh, because it's important that you do the learning that you need to learn. And so uh, we really did just that. We went around and listened, uh, and and uh, and I think that was really great advice Um and um, that's one thing. And then I think the other thing, it wasn't a particular quote that anyone, anyone told me, but the other thing I'm learning is that state-level activism is really important when it comes to this issue. And um, the more I uh, get involved with these state-level issues, um, the more I realize how you have to um, be really focused and patient in some ways because the wins you're going to get aren't going to be these massive sweeping wins that are national and, and you know, some major omnibus uh, criminal justice reform bill. Uh, you're, those are not really going to be the wins you get most of the time. Most of the wins are going to be smaller, but you have to keep going and keep fighting. And I think that's, that's another thing I've learned from working with these activists who, who devote their entire careers to this struggle. And how do you make sure that your celebrity doesn't overshadow the work that's happening on the ground by activists and organizers? How have you managed that? We try to be very strategic with everything that we do. So we are in touch with these activists long before I ever show up. Uh, so we, we were just in Louisiana, for instance. And we were in touch with uh, the activists and the task force that this, the governor had assigned uh, over a year and a half ago to uh, to start working on these issues. We've been in touch with them for months and months. And uh, we didn't show up until recently because uh, we all had decided that this was the right time to do, for me to show up um, and, and that me using my celebrity in this moment was going to be the right uh, moment for, for it to be effective and useful. Uh, and so there are plenty of times when I just don't, get involved but we're in in the uh, involved kind of uh under the radar but i don't show up and, and make a big splash in the news but when i do show up it does make a splash in the news state legislators want to take a picture with me and they want to kind of uh <laughs> be in my good graces while i'm there and it helps <laughs> these, these these guys are affected in some way by celebrity it's not the only thing they're affected by they're affected by 
electoral pressures that are at home and all these other things, uh, and ideology and all these other things. But in some ways, that little bit of, you know, FaceTime and handshaking and taking a picture, those things help kind of sway people's minds and make them pay attention to the things you're talking about. And um, it may mean the difference between a, a law passing or, or, or failing. Now, we won't spend a lot of time talking about uh, 45, the president, mm-hmm. but the health care bill just passed in the House. And yep. we know that it would have dire consequences if it actually passed both houses of Congress. Uh, what are your yep. what do you think the significance of this is? Uh, why do you think it passed? And what do you think people can do about it? Well, the significance is is huge. Anyone who's dealt with any kind of illness in their family, which I don't know anyone who hasn't, uh, anyone who has a pre-existing condition or anyone who has a family member that does, and again, I don't know anyone who doesn't, <laughs> um, like everybody is affected by the healthcare system, and it's an economic issue, uh, it's a quality of life issue, um, it's a survival issue, uh, it's a life and death issue for a lot of people. And anytime you're making it harder for people to access care, making it more expensive for people who have any sort of uh, sickness uh, or pre-existing condition. Um, you're making a lot of people's lives harder, and you're going to measurably and tangibly make their lives more difficult to live. Um, so it's hugely significant, and if it passes, it is a tragic thing for our country. I can't overstate it enough. Um, it sounds hyperbolic when we get, get involved in these conversations, but it really is life or death. And I'm super concerned about this issue, and I want to do anything I can to uh, influence the legislative process and encourage my fans to do the same thing. And uh, if you've seen my Twitter feed, I talk about this a lot because I care about it a lot, and I know how impactful it can be. People in my, like immediately in my life right now, uh, some of them are family members, some of them are not, but so many of them have pre-existing conditions that would make them uninsurable if we go back to the old system. And that old system ruins people's lives. They, 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 they go bankrupt because they can't afford the, the treatment that they, that they need. They die because they can't afford the treatment that they need. And I still can't believe that this Senate uh, and this president will sign a law into effect that would uh, harm so many millions of people. Uh, I still have some sort of hope <laughs> that they'll realize the the uh, dire consequences of them signing this into law and they'll uh, they'll get cold feet and they just won't do it. <laughs> I hope that's the case, but I, I don't have a lot of faith that that's the case, but I hope <laughs> that's the case. Now, as we close out, what's uh, one piece of advice that you've gotten over your career, your life that stuck with you? Ooh, I'm always bad at this because I, I don't kind of uh, hold on to nuggets like uh, quotes and 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 uh, I'm never one to post quotes on my Twitter like I'm not I'm just not a quote person <laughs> but I, I I feel like I learn things along the way that are really helpful for me That's but cool. I'm never one to kind of uh, hold on to quotes and and say this nugget changed my life or whatever. Well, it's something I you've learned over hold on to them that way over the years it's a lesson that you think you can share. Well, I think some of them, some of the lessons are the ones I've already talked about. Um, and, and I think other, other lessons, I think, are just by watching other people that I admire and uh, seeing the work that they've done 
and seeing how impactful they could be. Like who? And and, and there's a range of people um, that I admire for different reasons. And but I look at my career and think, well, here's some aspects of that person that I I want to emulate. I think about Quincy Jones. I think about Stevie Wonder. I think about Oprah. I think about Marvin Gaye. Uh, I think about Nina Simone. And some of those are musical influences, but also musical influences that uh, use their platform to uh, change the world. Harry Belafonte, Paul Robeson, uh, so many others that I think about um, as examples of the kind of artist that I want to be. And so I guess when I think about inspirations, it's not any particular quote that those people have said or any particular advice that, that the ones that I know have given to me, but it's more like just watching what they've done and using them as models for how I can move in the world and uh, and as both a artist, as a business person, and as a philanthropist, um, make an impact. John, I appreciate you joining uh, the second episode of Pod Save the People. And tell people how they can find out more about the work that you're doing around mass incarceration, prosecutors, or how they can follow you on social media. So all of my social media handles are John Legend, so at John Legend on Twitter and Instagram and <laughs> Snapchat. I don't snap very much, but I'm very active on Twitter and Instagram. And, and I also talk a lot about these issues on Twitter, uh, particularly, and Facebook. So uh, you can find me on those uh, social media handles. And then uh, our organization, uh, Fighting Mass Incarceration, is called Free America. And uh, you can uh, go to our website to do that. I think it's called letsfreeamerica.org, but... Uh, I don't even type in websites anymore. I just Google. <laughs> so <laughs> go to Free America. <laughs> and then um, our, our other organization that focuses more on education reform is called uh, the Show Me Campaign with a particular program called LRNG, uh, which is about uh, incentivizing teachers to innovate in the classroom and uh, providing funding for them and, and helping to spread their uh, findings to other teachers around the, the country. Uh, so those are some of the things we're doing. And uh, there aren't a lot of volunteer opportunities for us, but if you want to donate or get involved in any way uh, that you think would be helpful, uh, then uh, hit us up on social media, and uh, we'd, love to, uh, we'd love to interact with you. And then, of course, I have to plug my tour because it starts on May 12th in Miami, and we hope to see everybody out on the road. I think people are going to love the show. It... Um, it, it, it uh, Features songs from the new album, Darkness and Light, but also songs from my entire uh, repertoire, uh, starting back at Get Lifted. Um, and uh, it's really the best tour of my career, I think. We've been in, in uh, production rehearsals over the last uh, few weeks, and visually it's really stunning. Uh, our team put together just a, a powerful visual presentation, and the band is tight and ready to go. And uh, I'm ready to go, so I think people are going to really enjoy the show. Cool. Thanks so much, John. Thank you, DeRay. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Stay tuned. There's more to come. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. 
you can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's OMRI certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. And now we have a in-depth conversation with David Kamen about taxes. David, it's great uh, that you could join us today, and I'm excited for the conversation we're about to have. I am as well. It's great to be with you. So let's just start. How long were you in the Obama administration? I was there from uh, just after the election in 2008 uh, until 2012. What'd you do? I worked on tax and budget policy there. Uh, so I was first over at the Office of Management and Budget, uh, and then I was over at a place called the National Economic Council, which helps coordinate economic policy. And in both places, I was working on tax and budget policy. And what was your most recent title in the administration? So most recently, I was a special assistant to the president for economic policy over at the National Economic Council, where I helped out on policies around taxes uh, and, you know, the kinds of reforms we're going to be discussing to, uh, on, the, on, on the broadcast and uh, also on budget issues like Social Security and other key programs. And I read that there is a point when the United States government's budget was only on your computer. Is that true? <laughs> so it isn't normally that way. And uh, <laughs> this is for a short period of time uh, during the transition, uh, the transition between administrations just after President Obama had been elected. And uh, at the time, I just carried around my laptop a lot. I was sort of a numbers guy. And uh, so I tried to carry my laptop into all rooms where I would enter just so I could track the decisions that were being made by, you know, senior policymakers and, of course, the president-elect at the time. So it is not the normal case that, like, the budget gets carried around on one person's laptop. But for a short period of time, I was the numbers geek who was uh, carrying around the laptop with the budget decisions people were making. I love it. It's, people often think about the the people who carry around the like the nuclear codes, but they do not think about the one person who has the entire federal yes, government's is, budget. Uh, it gets far less attention. Certainly, a far less sexy thing than carrying around like something like that. But yeah, for a little while, there was there there, there was a laptop with with a big spreadsheet. Now, the reason that I wanted to have this conversation today is that there's been a lot of talk about taxes. And what I realized is that I had a lot of questions that I actually didn't know the answers to. And uh, the way I want to do this is, one, just I want us to talk about some foundational things and then talk about the recent conversations about changes to the tax code. But can you start us off with, like, what do federal taxes go to? Like, what is what do they what do they pay for? Sure. So the federal government uh, has a big budget. Um, it goes to a number of you know key areas, uh, and so about two thirds of the federal budget goes to the sort of the big key programs that provide you know 
social insurance and support for uh, families throughout the country, including Social Security, which is the single largest program, Medicare, which you discussed in the, uh, I think probably discussed a little bit on the last podcast on health, Medicaid, which was discussed quite a bit, um, and obviously things like the Affordable Care Act, et cetera. And so that composes about two-thirds of the federal budget. The other third of the federal budget, which is what taxes go to, um, is sort of the regular operations of key agencies. So whether it's, you know, the Department of Justice, whether it's Health and Human Services and just their regular operations and the Department of Defense, um, that's covered by about a third of the budget. But a key thing to remember is that when it comes to taxes, uh, taxes go to pay for those things. But we also run a number of major programs uh, through the tax code, which help out families. And that ranges from supports for uh, low- to middle-income working families to large tax expenditures like the home mortgage interest deduction or the charitable deduction. Before we get there. Which policymakers have chosen to have run through the tax code and like spend a lot of money um, on those types of activities. Before we get to the things that run through the tax code, let's stay on the, the straight-up taxes for a little bit. So two-thirds are the big programs, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, one-third running, just like running the government. Yep. Now That's tell right. me if and I... Including about half, half of that third is the Pentagon. Really? Yep. Wow. That's right. So about about a sixth of the federal budget is uh, the Department of Defense. Didn't know that. Now, the way the government collects that money is through income taxes and payroll taxes. Did I, that is right. That's right. So the two largest sources of revenue for uh, the federal government are income taxes, uh, which make up just a little under half of total federal revenues. Uh, and that's the, you know, people experience their income taxes when they file their taxes every April. They tend to get it withheld from their, check as, or their checks as the year goes on. And then the second major source of federal revenues, about a third of federal revenues, are payroll taxes, uh, which people also get withheld from their paycheck and go to finance Social Security and Medicare. From there, there are some other smaller sources of revenue, including the corporate income tax and things like the estate and gift tax. So the two biggest ones are the income tax and then the payroll tax for Social Security and Medicare. And everybody who is taxed pays into Social Security and Medicare. Is that right? Everyone who has uh, wage earnings pays into Social Security and Medicare, and people who are self-employed and have it classified as like as if they're earning, you know, labor income, they pay into Social Security and Medicare. The Social Security tax only runs up, but you stop paying it once you hit the taxable maximum, which is now a little over $120,000. And then you stop paying into Social Security. But anyone who is earning money will be paying into the Social Security and Medicare trust funds. So, David, you just talked about the max with Social Security um, and income. Can you just explain that? And like, what does that mean? Yeah, so it means that for uh, the very richest Americans, when they when their earnings during the year, once they hit $127,000 in earnings, they will stop paying into the Social Security trust fund. Um, and so with earnings above that, they will not be paying payroll taxes. For them, the big way they pay tax into the federal government is through the individual income tax. 
Um, and there's also a few other sources of revenue that also affect, especially the highest income Americans, things like the corporate income tax, which affects them because they tend to own corporations, and things like the estate and gift tax. So let's just For stay on. middle income Americans, they experience the tax system very differently than the high income person. For them, the main way that they're paying revenue into the government is through the payroll tax, the Social Security and Medicare payroll tax that gets deducted from their wages. When it comes to the income tax, they tend to pay relatively little in income tax, and for some low- and middle-income families, they will get a check back from the government when it comes to the income tax, which has become one of the major ways we support uh, low- to middle-income working families. So let me repeat that back. So two major sources of revenue at the federal government, income tax, payroll taxes. Payroll taxes pay for Social Security and Medicare, and there's a $127,000 cap on what is taxed with income. So if I make $11 million with regard to the Social Security Trust, it's only the first 127000 that's actually taxed, right? That's right. And But for the income tax, you will face taxes on your full $11 million, or you should. And low-income Americans pay the same percentage in payroll taxes as everybody else. That's right. So they say pay the same percentage uh, as everyone else, and obviously for the rich people, they stop paying at some point. But for low-income Americans, they pay the same percentage of payroll taxes, which is why the payroll tax is the major tax they pay to the federal government. Low-income Americans will also be paying sales taxes to state and local governments, etc. But for, for them, the main, thing, the main way that they're paying money into the federal government is through the payroll tax. Got it. Okay, now let's talk about state and local governments. So if the federal government, most of the revenue comes from income tax and payroll taxes, where does the state revenue come from? Yeah, the state revenue comes from somewhat different places and, uh, importantly, tends to be more regressive than uh, the way that we tax at the federal level, since the, big, the, the single largest tax at the federal level is the income tax, and that tends to be a relatively progressive tax, taxing rich people at higher average rates than low-income people or moderate-income people. So the same isn't true in state for state and local governments. Their two major sources of revenue are sales taxes, uh, which tend to affect you know, all families. Whenever you go to the store, you're going to be paying sales taxes. And then the second major source of revenue, uh, which can be somewhat progressive, is property taxes. Now, many states also have income taxes that they also um, have people pay, but it tends to be a smaller source of revenue for uh, state and local governments than uh, it is for the federal government. Now, can you just give like a quick and dirty of the difference between a progressive tax and a regressive tax? Yeah, so a uh, progressive tax is one where the percent of income that people pay to the government rises as people's income rise, so that the person that's pay- making $10 million a year should be paying a greater share of their income to the government than the family making 60000 and they should be paying a higher percentage than the family making 30000 So a progressive tax would have it so that that rate rises as, uh, you, ri- as, you, as, you, as income rises, and that's the case with uh, federal income tax especially, which is our, probably our most progressive tax we have in the country other than for like the estate and gift tax, which, you know, and it has higher income Americans pay more on average. We still have a problem where high-income Americans will sometimes try to game the system. There are people who pay tax lawyers to try to avoid it. But on average, the highest-income Americans pay a greater share of their income in income taxes. But then we have some more regressive taxes, taxes like sales taxes at the state and local level, 
which are not progressive in that way. And regressive means that everybody experiences the tax at the same rate regardless of income. That's right. And in some cases, when it comes to a sales tax, you might even find that uh, you know, low, you know, a low-income family is paying you know, everything that they're taking in in a given year. They're spending it all out because they just have no room to save. So they may actually be paying a higher share of their income and that kind of tax than like a high-income family who is you know, saving because they don't have to like, spend uh, everything just to you know, put food on the table. So that's exactly right. You've got a sales tax, which is taxing a higher share of people's income as you get lower down, or at the very least, they're paying the same rate. Got it. One of the things that I had heard, and I want you to push me on this before we transition to Trump and the burgeoning tax plan that is coming forth, is about welfare and how we, what do, what do taxes do to either support low-income families um, or what should they do? So I, I know about the earned income tax credit. I also know about welfare. Can you give us like an introductory explanation of the EITC and its relation to what, what we understand to be welfare? Sure. So at this point, um, the tax code is one of the key tools we are using to try to boost the incomes of low to middle income families and try to lift many families out of poverty. That's developed over the last several decades uh, with, you know, really significant pushes to try to change the tax code to help families in this way, um, with major expansions, for instance, in the 1990s of the Earned Income Tax Credit and the Child Tax Credit. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Also expansions under Obama. The way it works is that the Earned Income Tax Credit provides um, thousands of dollars uh, per year to working families, you have to have earnings to get it, but it goes to working families um, to help boost their incomes uh, based on how much they earn. And then as you get to higher and higher income, it eventually phases out. Families with more kids get a larger credit. We also have something similar now through the child tax credit, uh, which is also help providing you know, real support, $1,000 per kid, to many working families. Altogether, uh, this child tax credit and the earned income tax credit in 2015 lifted about 10 million people out of poverty and reduced the poverty of about 22 million other people. It has an especially large effect on children. So it's are the single most powerful tool we right now have that we're using to address child poverty and the poverty of people who are not on Social Security. Now, many people think that the single largest anti-poverty tool might be welfare, what people call welfare, because that's what people what comes to mind. Uh, unfortunately, the kinds of supports we provide very, very low-income families through welfare has gone away largely since the 1990s, or it's certainly been reduced. Starting in the 1990s, welfare got because of reforms they made at the time, has been stuck at about $16 billion per year going to families who generally aren't working. That's as compared to, for instance, the earned income tax credit alone is right now about $60 billion per year going to low-income uh, to moderate-income families. So these, this, these systems aren't perfect. Uh, they especially do not give as much help as is needed to really, really low-income families since the people who can access these benefits have to have earnings. So some of the most vulnerable families don't get the kind of support they need through the earned income tax credit and the child tax credit. 
However, it's important to keep in mind, especially as we begin to turn towards tax reform, that some of the key supports for low-income and moderate-income working families are coming through the tax code, and we have to make sure that those programs get defended and, if possible, expanded. So let me repeat that back. So when I think about welfare, I think about food stamps and and TANF, but I think you would say, I think that what is probably true, is that welfare is actually just TANF, temporary assistance to needy families, which is like cash assistance to families. Is that right? That's right. And so that's right. So TANF provides cash assistance to families, many of whom aren't working, but the it's pretty restricted. Um, there are a set of work requirements, and also the money amount has been restricted. Uh, it's been stuck at $16 billion per year since the 1990s, which means even if you just account for inflation, it's fallen in value by about a third. It also doesn't help out families when the economy goes into recession. It doesn't like provide any additional uh, um, money for you know, the economy and families when people really are in need. So at this point, some of the, the largest cash assistance we have for uh, low-income working families is actually coming through the tax code. So what I believe to be true is that welfare is also a block grant and not an entitlement anymore. An entitlement means that if you qualify, then the government pays it out. A block grant means that if you qualify, the government pays it out if there's money. Is that right? Yes, that's right. And the, the, the thing to add on top of that, normally the way the block grant works is it just gives a set amount of money to each state and then tells the state, go figure it out. Well, you know, you can figure out how you're going to distribute that money, but we're just going to give you a set pot of money for certain kinds of things that you can use it for, uh, but you've got to figure out how you're going to use it. And it takes the federal government out of providing a guaranteed safety net to families. It's important to keep in mind, in part going back to the discussion you were having on health care reform in just your prior broadcast, because one of the key things that Republicans are trying to do with Medicaid is turn it into a block grant. And the lesson of what happened with welfare is that they turned it into a block grant, they just handed it to the states, a set pot of money, and the pot of money never grew, which means that it's no longer providing uh, significant support to many low-income working families or low-income families. And so the kinds of programs that are providing a lot of support are programs like the EITC and CTC, uh, which aren't block granted, and which you know, families like the federal government will automatically provide the support if you're eligible. And food stamps, or otherwise known as SNAP, food stamps are still an entitlement. They're not block grants, right? That's correct. So That's like, exactly if you, right. If and you qualify. importantly, that meant that uh, food stamps could provide a lot more help for families during the Great Recession, when families' incomes fell and they needed a uh, you know, safety net to help catch them in the midst of that kind of downturn. So uh, that's a perfect example of a program which has continued to support families and was able to provide additional assistance when it was really needed. It looks like we need to, and we're, I know we're not going to talk more about this now, but at some point we should talk about how to make welfare work for people again. Like I didn't know that it was at a fixed amount that it's been at for since the 90s. Like that doesn't seem like it is in the best interest of uh, working class people. Yeah, no, I, I think there's an important, there's a really important discussion to be had around that, and especially how uh, how you address the the poorest of the poor and some of the most vulnerable families, because the kinds of programs we're talking about here, the the town, the tax side, the EITC and the CTC, these are really helpful, but they help families who are not in the deepest poverty, because you need earnings to access the programs, um, but with a families which are most vulnerable, families who would have used to get support through the old welfare program, 
they, they, they're getting less support. And so it's an important question of how you try to reform either welfare or reform the tax side in order to provide those family support. I also heard, and tell me if this is true or not, that the tax preparation lobby is one of the reasons why the tax either code or the tax system is not as streamlined as it could be. Is that true? Unfortunately, I think the answer to that is yes. And in particular, the way that we file our taxes in the United States is not the way that many other advanced countries have people file their taxes. And it can be made easier um, for many families. So the way it could be made easier is that the government could take the information that it's already collecting on, uh, on people, and it's already getting this information. So every time that you get a W-2, the government gets a copy of that and enters it into a database. Anytime you get any other kind of tax form from someone who isn't the government and saying, this is your income from you know, this source, the government's getting a copy of that and entering it into its database. And in the end, the government will check your return against what it thinks your income should be based on what people have reported to it. The way we could make life easier on many, many families is have the government use the information it already collects on people's incomes and pre-fill out a tax return for millions of Americans. And people could then go through and check it, make sure it looks right, but they wouldn't have to go through the process themselves of adding it up, paying a preparer to add it up, paying for software to add it up, and they could just use the information that's already being provided to the government. won't work for everyone, but it can work for many, um, many Americans. And unfortunately, efforts to reform the system in this way and to copy what many other countries have done have been stopped in its tracks by the tax preparer lobby, uh, which does not see this in their interests. And so I think one major way that we should be trying to simplify the system is to simplify the way people file their taxes. We have, there, is a, there are ways to do it. We already collect the information. We may just have to change certain ways that we collect it, when it gets collected. But this is something that's doable, but unfortunately uh, has yet to be done. I never knew that, like, it's the H&R blocks and the sort of TurboTaxes that have a vested interest in making sure that this is complicated for people. So uh, from a point, from an advocacy standpoint, I'm going to explore that one some some later episodes, but I appreciate you helping me understand that. Now, can you give us an overview of what Trump has proposed? What has he proposed and what would the impact be? So it's a little bit unclear what Trump has proposed. <laughs> so I think we know the direction, the details to some degree, have yet to be determined. Uh, when they released their tax plan, and I think you have to put plan in quotes, uh, now a couple weeks ago, it was a one-pager with very few words, and that's not enough to tell you much about how exactly they're going to be changing the tax system. What we know in terms of the greatest detail is what they proposed in the campaign trail, and which they seem to be basically copying in the proposal they're now releasing from the Trump administration. That proposal would dramatically cut taxes for the highest income Americans and for large corporations, which tend to be owned by the highest income Americans. At the same time, it would provide relatively little in tax cuts to middle and low income Americans. Uh, and in fact, millions of Americans under the campaign plan, about 26 million people would actually face tax increases under the Trump plan. And those are 26 million people who are low to middle income Americans and especially single parents. In terms of the total cost of the plan, because it really is a dramatic cut in taxes 
for people at the top with especially a reduction in the top individual income tax rate and a much more dramatic reduction in the corporate income tax rate and in the tax rate on business income that people earn through certain kinds of businesses. Altogether, it adds up to a cost of about $6 trillion over 10 years in terms of their campaign plan with about half of that. So half of that $6 trillion, $3 trillion approximately, goes to the top 1%. So it is a dramatically regressive tax plan, which would dramatically also expand federal deficits. And it's an elimination of the estate tax, and the estate tax means what? So yes, so one component of it uh, is that it also eliminates the uh, estate tax. The estate tax uh, applies right now to only the very largest estate. So these are when someone dies and they have an estate and it's being passed down to heirs. A sliver of those estates, about two of every thousand estates, uh, gets an estate tax applied to it. You have to have an estate for a married couple that's over about $11 million. So if you have over $11 million in total estate, uh, you get a tax of about 40% applied to the estate in excess of $11 million. Now, the sliver um, of of estates get this tax applied. Um, It raises around, I think right now, around $20 billion per year. Um, For the very largest estates, it's a big deal. So, you know, if Donald Trump says that he's worth $10 billion, and there's some question whether that's true, but if it's true, in theory, when he would, you know, if he were to die, he would have an estate which would be taxed at a 40% rate and pay about $4 billion in taxes. So it's one of the most progressive taxes we have. Only the very, very richest Americans pay it. It's already been scaled back significantly in recent years, uh, though it still affects the very largest estates and Donald Trump and his tax plan, along with Republicans in Congress, seem to be targeting eliminating it. I've also read about pass-throughs and decreasing the corporate income tax. Now, I have basic information on this, so totally push me if I'm wrong, is I believe that it would take the corporate income tax, so that means that companies that are traded on the stock exchange, are they are subject to the corporate income tax they would be taxed now from 35% to 15%, which would be the most dramatic decrease in the corporate income tax that we've seen in decades. Is that right? That's Yes, that's exactly right, and would cost uh, trillions of dollars. Trillions? Uh, yes, it would. So uh, cutting the corporate rate by that amount uh, would cost trillions of dollars to do. And has that ever happened? Has, that, has a decrease that sharp happened in recent time? No, no, it would be a dramatic decrease in the corporate tax rate. And can you explain, like, why people, I've heard of this in the, in the press, people call this a pass-through, but most people, like me, have no clue what a pass-through is. What is it? Can you give us, like, a quick and dirty understanding of what a pass-through is? Sure. So there are two, two types of business taxes that are being cut in the Trump tax plan. One is the corporate income tax, which is those big companies you can think of that get traded on the stock exchange, and they see a huge rate reduction. Uh, and there's actually a good, you know, good debate to be had about how the most effective way is to tax them. There are ways to reduce their rate while also doing other things that could pay for the rate reduction, so taxing them at the same amount in total. Those are things that one could talk about, but that is not what Donald Trump is doing. He's instead cutting the rate so massively that it would add hugely to the deficit and would be a huge windfall to the owners of those companies. You know, perhaps even more egregiously, um, and both are egregious, 
He's also talking about creating what would probably be the single largest tax loophole uh, in our tax code, um, which would be a loophole which would allow people who own, as you said, these things that are called pass-through businesses. They're things like partnerships, and so like owners of, uh, you know, say, a law firm or owners of a private equity firm. They would get their income tax, the income that they earn for working at that firm, at a special low rate of 15%, um, lower than what employees get taxed at, lower than their current top rate of around 40%, it would be 15%. So it would provide a huge windfall to people like law firm partners and private equity partners, and also Donald Trump himself, who tends to get their income through these kinds of businesses, from what we can tell, would try to provide a huge windfall to them. And then on top of that, Every person who could has the wherewithal to pay a tax lawyer and has high income would know that they should just set up these businesses to make all their money. And so it would be a huge uh, loophole, which would also cost massively. And now the scary thing about this seems to be that with such a dramatic decrease at, in the amount of trillions to the federal revenue, that this would be an easy way to say that suddenly we can't afford social welfare programs, like a host of programs. That's right, right? Yeah, so I think that's exactly right. And that's a big danger here. A big danger is that when people look at these tax plans, and even if they see that the rich are going to be getting like a disproportionate share of the benefits of the tax cut, if you don't put it together with the likely result, which is that down the line, because we have cut revenue so significantly, uh, people are going to say, look at the deficit. And because of the deficit, we can't afford making the kinds of investments we should be making, whether in infrastructure or science, and we can't afford the kinds of programs like Medicaid and Social Security and Medicare. We can't afford that stuff. We need to reduce it because we have such a large deficit. Well, that deficit would have been larger because you had such a massive tax cut beforehand. And so this, there is a cause and a, and, and, a, and a really very possible effect and you need to put the two and two together to see the full effects of this kind of tax cut agenda, which is not just to disproportionately enrich the very top right now, but that will eventually be paid for. And the danger is that when it's paid for, it will be paid for out of the pockets of low to middle income Americans through cuts in services and cuts in the kinds of key programs on which uh, they rely. How do we get in touch with you, David? Sure. So uh, you can always reach me on Twitter. I'm David C. Kamen, K-A-M-I-N, there. Uh, you can also look me up. Uh, my website through NYU Law has my email address and phone number. I'm always happy to talk about any of these issues. So, David, I appreciate you coming today. I want you to come back on the pod as a friend of the pod in some future uh, episodes where we can talk about the plan when it comes out. I think I, I learned a lot today. And if there's ever a tax plan that comes out, you'll be our guy. <laughs> My pleasure. And uh, it was great talking to you about it. And the shout outs for this week's Pod Save the People, there are two of them. The first is for Taylor Dumpson, who is American University's first black female student government president, who was subjected to racist threats and had to be protected by law enforcement because of those threats. Just want to commend Taylor on her commitment to American University and to representing students there. And the second is to Sally Yates, whose testimony before Congress reaffirmed our belief in our commitment to her and our understanding that this last election deserves a do-over. 
So those are this week's shout outs. That's what we got for today. Thanks for tuning in to Pod Save the People. And you know, I didn't know until the conversation we had last week, the difference between Medicare and Medicaid at a, at a deep level. And I didn't know until today's conversation that welfare was funded at the same dollar amount that today is. It has been since the welfare reform happened in the 90s. And I say that because some of this is about re-educating ourselves on the issues. And I hope that you learned uh, something from today's podcast. If you like what you're hearing, tell people to tune in and get it from wherever you get your podcast every Tuesday. You can go to podsavethepeople.com to learn more information about things covered on today's podcast. And I look forward to seeing you next Tuesday. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today.